Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those listening to the broadcast. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. And by the way, if you are new to this program, we not only have the program open for your interaction, we look forward to your interaction, and the program is designed around your interaction so that we can answer your questions or the questions that you are being asked from a biblical perspective, from a biblical worldview. That being said, you're listening to the program and you say, Nathan, I'm not a believer, I don't claim to be a Christian. First time I've ever stumbled across the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. First time I stumbled across the podcast. Welcome. We are glad that you're listening, but you can still ask your question. Ask your question about why the Bible says something, doesn't say it, about hard questions in life, and Pastor will answer it from a biblical perspective. Pastor, do you really believe the Bible has the answer for every question in life? I don't only believe it. I know it has the answer to life. The Bible says that God has given to us all that pertain to life and godliness. I mean, that is very clear. And it's inconceivable of me that God would create humankind and put him in a world without providing answers to his problems and his solutions to problems. I do feel that the Bible answers all the fundamental basic questions that man would have. Pastor, we have a lot of questions that have come in since last week's episode, and we're looking forward to many questions coming in during tonight's episode. The first question is, I have a question for That's Truth. I'm reading an online book entitled Demons and Tongues by Alma White. In pages 9 and 10, the author speaks of when one grieves the Holy Spirit and how their heart is opened for demons to enter and take possession. She then says in page 10 that when one loses the Holy Spirit, Satan has an opportunity to make one dupe of a counterfeit religion. My question is, can a believer in Jesus Christ lose the Holy Spirit? Is that possible, Pastor? Well, look, one of the things that struck me when I got the uh, sent me the email uh, has to do with the author. I'm not familiar with that author, and I suspect that um, that is one of those fringe authors that these would be subject. And the fact is dealing with demons and tongues as well. But to answer the question, uh, the 
thing we need to understand is that uh, the Holy Spirit in relation to the believer. If you look at um, Corinthians 3.16, Nathan, and read that to the audience, please. Yeah. Give me just a second. I should have alerted you. Yeah, Sorry about that. No, that's fine. I forgot to open up the uh, the Bible software on the computer as that opens. Let me flip to my paper copy of God's Word here. Corinthian, First Corinthians three sixteen. First Corinthians three sixteen says, "Know ye not that ye are the temple of the <clears throat> God, and that the holy and that of the Spirit of God dwelleth in you." Yeah, so it's, it's very clear that that's a, a, um, a teaching that the when a believer puts his faith and trust in Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within the believer. So the believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to assure you where I'm coming from now. So the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. Um, if you look at Romans eight fifteen, and you quote that, if you can read that for me, please, Romans eight fifteen. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, that's verse 15? 8.15. Yeah. And uh, that, go down and read that, that passage. It's also said, that if any man hath not the spirit of God, he's none of his. Um, I, I, uh, I thought that was a particular verse I wanted. But it's also in, in Romans chapter 8. If any man have not the Spirit of God, it is none of his. So if the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, and the author is suggesting that the Holy Spirit leaves the believer, it would mean then that the Holy Spirit does, as he does not uh, is dwelt, indwelt by the believer. That means then that the believer would be lost because he's none of his if he doesn't have the Spirit. Mm. So if you take logic, and you apply logic to that, those two verses that without the Spirit, you're not of God. If a believer now loses the Spirit of God, it means that he's, he's no longer a, a believer. He's no longer uh, a Christian. There are other verses in the Bible that uh, speak strongly about the uh, Holy Spirit in relation to the believer. If you look at um, 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5, 5, yeah. says, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Right, the word earnest there is the down payment. That's what the word earnest means. Like you go to courts and you buy furniture and you make a down payment. That You claim that by making a down payment. That is precisely what is referred there. The Holy Spirit is given to uh, us as a believers as the down payment for the actual final redemption of the body. The body is not redeemed yet. And the Romans uh, deals with that in Romans chapter 8, that one day the body will be redeemed. But as a token that the body is going to be fully redeemed, we are given an earnest of the Holy Spirit, which is the the guarantee that we are going to redeem, fully redeem. Then look at Corinthians chapter one twenty two, Second Corinthians one twenty two. Second Corinthians one twenty two says, "Who hath also sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts?" Same word there, sealed us. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the earnest of the down payment that the body will be finally possessed uh, by the Lord. And also, if you look at Corinthians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Again, uh, go ahead. Verse 14 says, Which is the earnest earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession Unto the praise of his glory. Right. So you see the sealing uh, is the down payment, basically. Sealing of the Holy Spirit is the earnest of the down payment, basically, that the body will finally be um, redeemed. Uh, so, And then the other verse I think is important is uh, Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. No, that sealing will only be uh, removed until the day of redemption. The seal guarantees until the day of um, uh, redemption, the final redemption of the body. So when you take the scriptures and you see what the Holy Spirit um, is indwelling the believer, he seals the believer, he's a down payment or the, uh, that the possession would actually be completed. One other verse that I think is very significant is John fourteen sixteen. That says... And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Again, it's very, very clear that the Holy Spirit abides with the believer forever. So to suggest that um, the Holy Spirit leaves the believer is completely contrary to all the Bible teaches in respect to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals the believer. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the down payment that the possessed, the the body, uh, the redemption that we've already had, um, is going to be completed with the body be fully redeemed. And then it's very, very clear that the Holy Spirit will dwell with the believer forever. So to answer the question, and I, I went about the wrong way to get the person some scripture, strong biblical scripture that would support the fact that the Holy Spirit cannot leave a genuine uh, believer. So the author who wrote that book and is suggesting that the Holy Spirit will leave, and when the Holy Spirit leaves, the dev- devil come and possess the believer. Uh, is not They're not biblical in the doctrine. It's completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Now, a believer can be under the influence of the, the, the devil, but he cannot be possessed because the believer's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's inconceivable that the strong man, the Holy Spirit, would in any way be deficient in dealing with the enemy. But there's no question that the believer can come under the, the influence of demonic uh, demonic influence. But in terms of being possessed, uh, I don't find biblical warrant for that. I would say that I wrestled with this for quite a while. I read um, some books by... Uh, uh, who wrote on uh, demonology? A lot of the de- demonology books that I was reading, not not Cock, there's a uh, Unger. Unger. He wrote that, and I read some books. What demons can do to to Christians, and he uh, suggested, out of missionary experience, that it was possible for believers to actually be possessed. And I I I, um, I wrestled with that for quite a while, and I'm pretty much convinced at this point in time that the the holy and the argument there was that the body is not redeemed, but the argument Paul is that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So to use the argument the body is not redeemed, therefore it gives access to the devil to take control, contradicts the idea that the Holy Spirit is indwelling the body. Right. So I am a, a contrary to what is being taught. 
I know a believer can be influenced uh, by uh, demonic powers, but actually possessed, um, I find no biblical warrant for that. And this is part of the Pentecostal movement, by the way. You have people who go into these churches and they're saying, um, we cast out 10 demons, 20 demons. And um, so where are all these demons coming from? If this is the believer, where are they coming from? Or where are they going? when they leave that person, et cetera, et cetera. But this is part of the Pentecostal emphasis that um, gives the idea that a believer can be possessed and need to be deliverance. That's where the whole deliverance ministry comes from. And it's a very big movement, as you would know, within Pentecostal circles. But um, there's no biblical warrant that a believer is possessed. If a person is possessed at all of a demon, that means that, quite frankly, that they're not saved. So you're not delivering Christians. You're actually delivering uh, unsaved people out of demonic control. But um, there's no evidence that the Holy Spirit can lead the believer or will lead the believer when Jesus said he will be with you forever. That's another argument, uh, Nathan, that I have when it comes to the outer darkness doctrine. You're telling me that a person who has the indwelling Holy Spirit will spend a thousand years in outer darkness. That doesn't make any sense at all to me. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the same time? Right. It's Makes contradictory. absolutely no sense to me. Yeah. The person who sent in this question says, The author further emphasized, and this is a quote, Having once had the Spirit and lost Him, they have no power to discern between the false and the true. Well, again, um, that is a um, proposition that has no biblical warrant for it. If Jesus said His Spirit is going to dwell with you forever, who are you going to believe? Her or believe what Jesus said? If Paul said we see with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, who are you going to believe? The Apostle Paul or believe uh, a modern writer? For me, the question is settled through Christ and through the Apostle Paul. But I can see if it were possible that the Holy Spirit did lead the believer because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of discernment and the spirit of illumination. I can see the person might lose discernment, etc. But again, um, You've got to stick with the scripture. You just can't stick with a modern writer, no matter how gifted that person may be. It's what they're teaching in line with scripture, or is it contrary to scripture? In this case, this is contrary to scripture. Our next question, coming from the Southern Caribbean, can a backslider go to heaven? Well, I would begin by asking the person who sent in the question, what is their definition of a backslider? If the definition of a backslider is what I understand as a backside in the Bible that you're dealing with a person who is a born-again believer, who has been justified, who has been saved, but have fallen into sin and gotten away from the Lord. My answer to that question is yes, because the person is justified already, the person is saved already. But I want to make a few caveats and, and, and to cautions. Um, this might seem a very broad statement to make, and my, though I'm endorsing um, people backsliding, etc. Is my belief that the vast majority of people who say they're backslidden are not backslidden. My belief that a lot of them, most of them, are not saved. They were never saved in the first case. Um, if a person is truly saved and is backslidden, they will come under the chastening discipline of the Lord, according to Hebrews chapter 12. So if a person is in a backslidden state, and there's no kind of uh, divine chastening, that person is not a son. Jesus, uh, Paul writes, he's a bastard. If we do not endure chastening, he said we're not sons, but we're bastards. And a bastard means an illegitimate son. 
Uh, that's what it really means, literally, in the Greek language. Um, I believe that a person is truly saved, born again, trusted the Lord, got into sin, got away from the Lord. I believe that discipline process takes a certain format. I believe that uh, the Holy Spirit's job after that happens is to bring conviction and guilt in the person's life that what they're doing, what they engage in, what have led them away from the Lord, uh, they feel guilty about that. That's why backsiders are sometimes the most miserable people on planet Earth. They're not comfortable with God's people, but they're not comfortable with the unsaved person as well. They're kind of in between trying to adapt to the situation. I find also that uh, that the conviction will also normally follow with some kind of counsel from God, and that will come in various forms. Sometimes it's the Word of God that the Lord would use to counsel the person that they've gone away from Him. Sometimes it's the words of other believers that they come into contact who maybe knew them in church, who knew that they once lived a godly life, but now they've gone away and living a life of degradation. But they would be divine counseling to try to bring that person back. Thirdly, uh, uh, there will be divine chastening. And by chastening, I mean sometimes be physical affliction, emotional affliction. Sometimes it might even be psychological affliction, spiritual affliction, even financial affliction and familial affliction. Any means to get our attention to bring us back to a walk with God. Uh, that is what chastening is all about, making our lives miserable, discomforting us, and bringing it to that point where we're willing to say, okay, God, uh, I was wrong, I was evil, I was wicked. Uh, you have now shown me my ways, my evil ways. I want forgiveness and pardon. I want it to be restored. Remember that chastening is always designed to restore, always to bring the person back. It's not to push the person off, etc. And um, that means now that uh, the goal for chastening is repentance, is for restoration, and sometimes it's even for restitution, where you've hurt other people, you come back to the Lord, and the Lord says to you, listen, uh, it's not just enough for you to repent and to be restored with me, but the relationship is broken between you and whatever it is, and you need to get that, that corrected. So I think that is what happens uh, in the process. Um, some examples of people who, in my judgment, were backslidden. For example, I think Solomon died in a backslidden state. It is said that when he became old, the women that he married turned his heart away from the Lord, and he went into idolatry. Now, I don't think anybody who knows who Solomon was would believe that Solomon was a lost man. Right. right? So clearly, I, I believe that he, he died in a backslidden state, and I, I, I have no doubt in my mind that Solomon was saved. The other one, I think, is Ananias and Sapphira. They just told one lie, and I do not believe that the fact that they told a single lie was an indication that they were unsaved. It's very, very clear that these were people who would come to the gospel, believe the gospel, but uh, got into the trap of wanting to be significant and wanted to get in the limelight, and that led them to commit uh, a lie. And because the church was so holy and so pure at the very beginning, to keep that kind of sin out of the church, the Holy Spirit and God drastically brought about judgment suddenly. But I have no doubt that I will meet them in heaven. And another example, which I think is a classic example, Nathan, is First uh, John 5, 1-3. First John five one to three says. Sorry, First Corinthians five one to three. Sorry. First Corinthians five one to three. It is reported commonly 
that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that ye he hath done this deed, might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. Okay, go to read it. The in, the name, okay, in the name of our Lord <coughs> Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Stop there. That, this is where I think is, is a classic, a really good example of a person who is living in sin, saved, um, a sin that is so atrocious that Paul said it's not even meant among the Gentiles, but clearly an incestuous relationship with, with his stepmother. The church, rather than discipline this young man, excommunicate him, uh, they are boasting. This is how carnal this church is, that they are so liberal and generous and tolerant that they could accommodate this young man in spite of the lifestyle that he had. Paul said, look, I'm not even there in body, I'm there in spirit. When you come together in the name of the Lord, put this person out of the church, deliver him over to Satan to destroy his body or his flesh, but that is what? Spirit might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. That clearly indicates that Paul felt that a person could be in a backslidden state, die in a backslidden state, but yet his spirit will be saved. So I think it's one of the strongest passages in the Bible that would uh, lead anyone to understand that a person can get away from the Lord, be in sin, and uh, is killed, uh, and uh, still the spirit is saved. That which me to the, the thing I mentioned, Nathan, is uh, the conviction about guilt, Counseling that person through the word or through another believer, divine chastening, whether physical, financial, familial, uh, psychological, whatever it is. But the last thing is this when that person does not respond, I believe that God cuts them off. And that's why the Bible talks about sin unto death. And that's where a person who is a believer cannot go on indefinitely living this perpetual life of habitual sin. If he doesn't repent, he doesn't uh, turn him back, and he doesn't get um, restitu- rest- restoration, uh, it's my honest judgment that God removes that person prematurely. And that's why you read of sometimes a young man dying very young, but he was so young, or some weird accident that took away this person living in rebellion. I believe that God cut short that kind of a life for his own sake, and for his name's sake. So I don't think we'd be allowed to continue to perpetually living a life of habitual sin without there being divine chastening. If that divine chastening doesn't lead to repentance, I believe that God cuts the believer off. And um, so I do feel that a person can be saved, get away from the Lord, get into sin, get involved, uh, die in that state prematurely, whatever, and uh, be saved. That brings me to the, the other third thing, Nathan, is the matter of whether the believer has eternal security or not. And if you look at John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. John 10, 28 and 29 says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, 
and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I, did, I don't know if there's a stronger verse of Scripture that guarantees the believer that kind of security. They shall, and by the way, in the Hebrew, in the Greek language, it's not just that they shall never perish, it's but they shall never, no, never ever perish. Uh, it's in the superlative form, basically. The whole idea, the emphasis is there that the believer is secure and he will not go to perish. Another good verse, Nathan, is Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise to the believer. If, if you're in Christ, he's promised that he began something with you, he's going to finish. And that finishing might require a premature death because you're not uh, responding, you're not repenting, and he removes you. Uh, but he is active in your life from the time you're saved until you come into glory. And in the process, it might require discipline that he has to take you out, cut you off long before uh, because you're not responding to his discipline. And then one other, other verse is uh, Hebrews ten fourteen. Hebrews 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I don't know how that that could mean anything else. That when a, when a person comes to faith in Christ, he becomes sanctified in Jesus Christ, and that person is perfected forever, forever by the sacrifice of Christ uh, for that that person. So if he's perfected forever, how can he then be lost when the the, the work of Christ on his behalf perfects him? Okay. Um, so the biblical evidence uh, is strong that a person can get away from the Lord in a accident state and um, be safe even if he's cut off very early. What I'm against uh, at this point in time is the idea that a person, say they're Christian, and they go on living for years and years and years and years in a sinful lifestyle without any kind of divine chastening. If that happens, I would suggest to that person there are not a son, they are a bastard. There must be divine chastening if you're a child of God and you've gone away from him. And if it doesn't exist in your life, I will suggest you've got something but you don't have the real thing. What would you say to the individual who's listening and they say in their mind, I hope they aren't bold enough to say it out loud, in their mind they are thinking, all right, I've been wanting to practice this particular sin. I'm a born-again believer pastor has said there is such a thing as a backslider, therefore I've been given license to sin. No, you haven't been given license to sin because the Bible is very, very clear that he that is born of God does not habitually practice sin. That's in the book of 1 John chapter 4. The Holy Spirit is the anointing that indwells the believer. The Holy Spirit is pushing the person in the direction of holiness. Now we can rebel against the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, we know that. And it's possible for a person to make a willful choice of that. But again, if that happens, divine chasing will bring that person back to sanity, right? Because we all know there's an element of rebellion in, in, in ourselves. We want to do our own thing, go our own way. That is there. But if we go contrary to God's Word and we do something that we deliberately know we should not do, uh, we will be chastened and, uh, and to be humbled before God to come back to that point of repentance and, and restoration. What I'm leery of is seeing people living in sin for years and years and years and years, and when you talk to them, they seem as though they're confident they're going to heaven, they're saved. And when you ask them, 
is it any chasing in your life? Ah, oh, no, man, I'm, in, I'm just enjoying, I'm enjoying the sweets. That person ought to seriously sit before God and examine themselves because that gives no sign of any authentic reality as far as their conversion is concerned. There has to be divine... Uh, uh, read Hebrews chapter uh, 12, not, not you, Nathan. I'll suggest a person read that. It is very, very clear that if we do not endure chasting, it's because we are not sons we are called bastards or illegitimate children. There has to be chastening if we live in perpetual sin to bring us back to repentance and restoration. We have a follow-up question in relation to the first question you mentioned. Remember the verses that you were explaining, the word earnest? Yeah. Uh, Pastor, can you please recap the scriptures where you mentioned the word earnest? Um, it's in uh, first. It's Ephesians 1, let me get the verse that I gave you. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Um, Ephesians 4, 30. Um, I think you also find it in 2 Corinthians 1, 22 and 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 5. Uh, and the meaning of that again? It's down payment. It means, means down payment. And that gives us confidence that the Holy Spirit has sealed us. That's right. That's a, that's the seal is the basically is the you know it's like again I I wanted something on courts I'm going to purchase it eventually I go and make my dunk payment that is there until I break the contract quite frankly but in the case of a Lord we seal until when the day of redemption that's when the body is purchased uh, completely taken over Paul talks about that that uh, Romans chapter eight that we 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 are now in a state of grieving and, and paining that we are in this body and he says the day is coming when that body is going to be fully redeemed the body is not fully redeemed yet and that's when we be transformed and become like uh, our Lord Jesus Christ you're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse the time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.01 we're broadcasting from Antigua on 11.60 a.m. 92.3 f.m. and during this program you can also join us on Facebook go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page click on the Facebook Live video feed and while you listen to the program and watch behind the scenes you can comment your questions and they are being monitored and will get passed along to Pastor Murphy live during the program if you have a question and you want to WhatsApp or text it you can send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four our next question pastor what would be the current state of affairs if eve had eaten from the tree of life and not the tree of knowledge of good and evil in genesis 3:22 it says and the lord god said behold the man has become as one of us to know good and evil and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, if she had eaten of the tree of life, would we be immortals? To me, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil that brought forth sin into the world and hence the present state. Well, I think you have a correct assessment of what um, what would have happened. And it's clear that you have a, a biblical understanding of that particular passage. But we can infer a few things from the Genesis record in, in relation to the tree of life, that if Eve had chosen the tree of life vis-a-vis the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there's several things that we know. Number one, there would have been no sin. Because what brought the sin was eating of the 
tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we know that number two, we would have had, therefore, a sinless, perfect society. Almost like the idyllic paradise of the millennial period where uh, the animal lies down with the, uh, with the, with the um, lamb and where a child is able to play with a snake, uh, etc. So we would have that kind of... Number three, we would have all had an ongoing fellowship with God. We are told in the book of Genesis that the Lord came down and, and walked in the garden and uh, clearly had a relationship between Adam and himself. So that would have been a full relationship between between him. The third thing I think would that we would have gotten immortal bodies, and that's the thing that uh, the whole redemption is all about. Um, it is clear that by eating the fruit, she, she would have lived forever. In her, in her body, but it's clear that there's a connection between eating the fruit and the eternal immortality of the body. So I think that uh, if she had not eaten the fruit, that immortality that comes to us now by putting our faith and trust in Christ uh, would have uh, t- been able to take place without the necessity of, of that. And then we would have had an enriched spiritual life in the sense of becoming more godlike. Uh, and that was the trick of the devil you become like God. And becoming God-like is, is what happens in redemption because they're trying to restore the image, and the image is in righteousness and in, in, in holiness. That's the whole whole purpose. That's what the image of God restored in man involves, righteousness and holiness. And that relationship with God would have grown, and out of that would have grown uh, holiness and righteousness. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Next question, what became of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? What is the present state of that tree? Just in addition to my question, in Revelation 22.14, it says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Here the tree of life is reserved for those that do his commandments, whereby they receive the right to the tree of life. By doing his commandments, it means obeying God. Adam and Eve did not obey God in the Garden of Eden when he told them they should have not eaten of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. I stand to be corrected. Thanking you in advance for your answer to my question. Well, this is where we enter the realm of speculation because there's nothing about the tree of life until we come again to the book of Genesis, a book of Revelations. So it's mentioned in Genesis and the last book of the Bible, what man lost, he regains in the book of Revelation. So there's clear here, for those who don't believe in a, a completed Bible, to my mind, if you read Genesis and you read Revelation, what is lost is restored. It's like the beginning of a book and the end of a book, to be honest with you. Uh, the other thing I would say is that we can only speculate, um, and, you know, it could have been that God um, removed it after the time of trial, and uh, etc. It could have been that it was washed away with the flood. Uh, it could have been that the angelic being that was to, to take guard of the garden to prevent man from going back, it, it could have been after a period of time that it was destroyed by him. Uh, but again, the last next place we find it is in uh, Revelation. And there are three passages there, Nathan. Look at Revelations 2.7, where promise is made to the overcomer. Revelation 2.7, He that hath an ear, let him hear that the Spirit saith unto the churches, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Right, so there it is. That's a promise. Uh, to those who overcome, that they'll be given access to this tree in the, in, 
our Lord promised. And then look at Revelations 22, 2. Revelations 22, 2. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That is the city that came down from, from heaven that seems to either sit on planet Earth, the newly renewed Earth, or suspended. But again, notice that the tree of life that we was mentioned in Genesis now center speech uh, sent, um, there in the book of Revelation chapter two, 22, verse 2. And then one other verse uh, was mentioned, 24, 14. Uh, Revelation? Yeah, 22, 14. 22, 14 says... Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Again, there it is in the new city of Jerusalem. So it is very, very clear that the tree of life mentioned in Genesis is now centerpiece in the new city, of uh, what is called the heavenly city of Jerusalem, um, what we call the city that comes down and suspended. So it's there. So it could have been. Seems more likely that it was removed and taken back uh, to, to heaven, where it once again would become centerpiece in this new city the Bible talks about. But again, we're into the realm of speculation because we're not given any details other than that. So we can only speculate that this is probably what happened. We do know that it's in heaven. Uh, and the new city of Jerusalem, new heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down. We do know that. So it's likely it was taken back and um, will be restored in the new city. We have a question that was sent in by Codrington. Pastor Murphy, all those who say they are living, all those who say they are Christians, are they living a heavenly life? No. I mean, that's a very, very simple answer. Uh, the vast majority of people who profess to be Christians uh, are not living uh, a godly life. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I was looking at some statistics recently in one of our messages where, for example, uh, one-third of the U.S. population profess to be born-again people. Mm-hmm. That, I, I forgot the figure I gave them. That, that is almost like 125 million people who claim to be born-again Christians. Uh, I suspect that a vast majority of those are not not, not Christian. Like in Antigua, uh, Antigua is normally a Christian country. I mean, you can look at the current moral state of Antigua, and there is no question at all that the vast majority of people in Antigua are not saved people. They are pagans. And what I mean by that, they're not born-again believers, and they live uh, an ungodly life. So... Uh, the vast majority of people who claim to be Christians do not live the life that the Bible requires. But just let me say this to Mr. Codrington, if I may. You know, remember um, Peter wanted to know what would John do? Lord, what shall this man do? After he was told that he would one day be uh, crucified and martyred, and he said, you know, but but Lord, tell me what is John going to do? And the Lord said um, said to Peter, what is that to you? Follow thou me. So don't worry about what other people are doing, how other people are living. Your priority and your focus should be on you living a good, godly, righteous life, one that is pleasing to the Lord. So concentrate on your relationship with God and don't be too bothered about other people. You just be the example you should be 
and live up to the standard of the Christian faith that you should be because people need examples and need models and uh, they need human models and uh, strive to be the kind of model Christian that uh, you know the Bible requires of you. Pastor, we have Brother Williams on the line. Brother Williams, go ahead with your question, please. Hi, good night, good night. Haven't heard you for a long time. Good hearing you again. Yes, yes, I listen every time, I listen every time. So. I, I, I'm sure of that. How can I help yes. you this evening, sir? Yes, uh, I would like an explanation on First John chapter 5. First John 5. 13 to 18. All right, let me read these verses. First John chapter 5, verses 13 to 18 says... Yeah, I, I will listen up here. All right. Okay. Thank you for your call, Brother Williams. Thank you. Really appreciate right. it. Say hi to your wife, please. <laughs> First John five thirteen. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hears us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. Verse 16, if any man see his brother in a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin unto unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that you should pray that he, let me back that up. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All right unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin unto death. And verse 18, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. All right, well, let's take it as it uh, verse by verse. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Here John is writing to believers to reassure them that if they have the faith and trust in Christ, they know that they have eternal life. In other words, people tell you you can't know. Well, you can know uh, according to what John says here, that you can know you have, if your faith and trust is in him, uh, you are told that you can know that you have eternal life. Um, and John is saying also, you know, that you may believe in the name of the Son. In other words, I'm encouraging you to put your faith and trust in him because you can know you have eternal life. That's the assurance the believer can have uh, from a Christian perspective. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if we pray according within the realm of God's will, uh, we, we know that he's going to hear us. And if he hears us, he answers that. So when it comes to prayer then, it doesn't mean that every prayer that we offer to the Lord, he's going to get an answer. The 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 umbrella term that is used there, the controlling phrase that is used there, is according to his will. If you know something is God's will and you're sure that this is God's will, you pray and you're going to get it. Right? But again, how do you know it's God's will? Well, God's will is in his word. Uh, and there are things in God's word that we know to be God's will. Like... This is the will of the Father that you believe that Jesus is his son, and you put your faith and trust in that is God's will. But there are other areas of life that we're not too sure what is God's will. What job should I select? Uh, should I migrate from Antigua and go to the States or go to another country? Should I marry this person? Should I 
should I um, take this course? All of these are issues that we have to deal with. And if we are sure of something being God's will, the promise is made that he will grant us his will. So the key controlling factor, whether we get answer to our prayers, is God's will. That is the key thing that's mentioned there. Uh, verse 16, If any man see his brother in sin, uh, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he be given life for them that sin unto, not, sin not unto death. There's a sin unto death. I do not say that you should pray for it. Again, what this sin is unto death is, we can't find it anywhere in Scripture what this particular sin is. But apparently, clearly in the New Testament days, uh, there was some particular sin that was known by those people as a sin unto death. Um, but again, he's saying that, you know, if a person has committed that sin, which you think it is, is going to lead to their death, don't worry to pray for that person any longer. If the Lord is leading you in that direction, don't pray for that person. But if you don't think it's a sin unto death, he said you pray, and then you're going to get that person be, be restored. So it has a matter, again, of you knowing whether or not the Lord leads you to be convinced it's a sin unto death or not. It's between you and him. And then the other part of it, um, and we know uh, verse 18 verse 18 and we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself and the wicked one does not the word here he that is born of God sinneth not in the Greek language is in linear tense he that is born of God does not habitually practice sin. That's what it really means. It doesn't mean a believer can't sin. Um, the person tells me that they can't sin and they won't sin um, are so self-deceived that John tells us very clearly in the very beginning of this book, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But what John is now warning about is this practice of habitual sin. And he that is born of God uh, is not going to practice this kind of habitual sin. doesn't mean he can't sin, but it's not going to become a habitual form where he's dominated and controlled and mastered and enslaved uh, to sin. <clears throat> and we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in the Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and uh, eternal life. And that's the reason why Christ himself came, not only to make God known, but also let, let man know that he could be saved through uh, faith and trust in Him. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And uh, again, an uh, idol is not necessarily something that you create in a small little effigy made of gold or silver. An idol is anything that you put before God. Anything that takes priority in your life. Anything that displaces God in your life. So you, you, your, your money can become a God. Not that you create an effigy of your money and you bow down before it every Sunday, uh, every day. Um, your car could become your your idol. Your home can become your idol. Your house can become your idol. Can your spouse? Your spouse can become your idol as well. You put your spouse before the Lord. Uh, so you always must not have anything before Him. So um, we've got to stay away from idolatry, which involves keeping a right relationship with God and keeping a balance in life that nothing takes precedent or priority over our relationship with Him. Uh, so we can drift in and out of idolatry. There's no question about that. But we must be very, very concerned that Whatever it is, it doesn't take precedence over our lives. Uh, that's what the Bible is talking about there in this passage. Thank you very much for your call and your question, Brother Williams. We have many questions that are coming in. If you haven't heard your question answered yet, stick with us. We will get to it. Pastor, we have a question that has come in. 
Will there ever come a time when we need to adjust our evangelism techniques or methods because of how the world may perceive our approach? Let me explain. We know the secular world has hijacked and changed the meaning of words such as gay. The current woke culture is redefining and changing the meaning of simple things. I recently heard people say that the wordless book is extremely racist because the white page, which references being clean in God's eyes, is just to make (coughs) white people feel superior to other races. Pastor, will we need to stop using the wordless book as a witnessing tool because it may alienate some who think it is racist? Well, if I was dealing with a person who felt it was racist, clearly I would go at a different approach uh, to the, to deal with that particular matter. So if it is a, uh, viewed as a, a racist thing, I think we need to be very, very careful that it's not projected as though we are trying to perpetuate any kind of racism. But if you look at the colors that, that are mentioned, um, these are universal colors that are u- universal symbols of, 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 of those things. For example, um, green growth, tree growth, um, uh, what's the other one? Huh? Is the gold street? The gold we always represent uh, would be used of representing heaven. Starts with the black. Page. Uh, the, the black page starts with sin. Um, Red. I would suggest that that could be because really the Bible talks scarlet. Your sins be as scarlet, right? If you white as snow, so that it may be that 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 is not a proper, maybe not. But I think generally people see it as as. Um, if it can be connote something that is not misinterpreted as trying to create um, the fact that it's because it's black, black people are sinful, I, th- I think that is where the issue comes in. And if you're doing evangelism in a black country and that was perceived to be a problem, it would be a very unwise thing for people to c- continue to perpetuate that uh, and deal with it. So there might be a need. Nothing uh, is made in, in stone. That is, if it is not in the Bible, uh, the wordless book is not in the Bible. So we can change accordingly so that it may be um, that if it becomes a problem to some people, um, it, it may be that that, that could do. So I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm for adapting if there is not something specifically talked about in the Bible. But we've got to be very, very careful that we don't change language of the Bible to accommodate the woke group. For example, are we going to change such word as redeem now, which means to buy back our slavery? Are we going to change the word do loss, which means bond slave? You know, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't allow our um, our sensitivity. And, and and by the way, a lot of this is not coming from the Christian community. It's coming from, from black nationalism that is pushing back against Christianity. So we've got to understand what is happening. But again, if it needs to change... And if it's offensive and there's not a biblical basis for it, I am all for changing and uh, adopting different methods of dealing with it. I'm just concerned about the idea of changing and the language to accommodate the, the woke crowd because it, it has certain connotations, et cetera, et cetera. For example, I mentioned the word bulos, a slave. You can't take that out of the Bible. You can't take redeem, which means to buy back out of the marketplace of uh, of sin, basically, or the marketplace of where a person was sold. Those are uh, t- terms that are taken out of the culture at the time and applied. And remember that those terms were not talking about black people. 
Those were the white slaves under Rome and under the Grecian, Grecian Empire. So it was not used for a purpose to discriminate or to label any particular racist, racial group. This is coming out of European countries dealing with European slaves at that particular point in time. So we've got to be very, very careful that in our attempt to sanitize our, our, the Bible to accommodate the woke group, that in the process we don't lose the meaning of Scripture and uh, find that we dilute the Bible now in order to accommodate them. But if it can be, if it is helpful to change certain things to um, lessen the impact of what would be perceived to be racist or whatever, I see nothing wrong with that. So we can adjust the method, but the message is got yes. to Methodist change can change all the time. Um, for example, a lot of evangelism is done now by the Internet. I am not in cahoots with this, um, a lot of this chat line, but a lot of evangelists have done their chat line. I'm not skilled with it, but believe me, a lot of that, uh, Joe does a lot of it in, in talking to people, etc., etc. So that is really a tool of evangelism as well, not only just for all the crazy stuff that's up there, but to interact with people, etc., etc. So that's a method that was never there before, and it's probably a more effective method than walking down the street and reach more people that way than actually just doing visitation. So it's a tool. And it's a wise thing that we can use that tool to reach other people. Is there a balance, though, to be had? Because, like, how far can we go to accommodate the woke? Is it okay to change the gender of God? Oh, no. That is clearly something that should never happen. Uh, God is father. He's not mother. Okay? That's the the way it's presented throughout the Scripture. We have no right to change the Bible and to change the gender that is in the Bible, uh, except we have no right to do that, uh, to accommodate people, especially the feminist movement now, now the LBGT group and all that kind of group. And this is where I, 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 I dealt with the whole matter about the, the, the modern apostasy within the church. We have forgotten who is Lord. We have forgotten who we serve. We are not serving men, we are serving God. And never forget this, Nathan, the gospel is offensive, has always been offensive. And we can't take the offense of the gospel and still have the gospel. So the things that we're going to say are going to offend people. And we must not in any way try try to mollify that or assuage how they feel about that. We must let the Holy Spirit take the Word of God and do His work. We must not be too concerned about all this nonsense going on. And by the way, I heard... um, I think it was Sarah Huckabee made a statement the other day. I don't know if I mentioned it last time. But she said the, the, the problem today is not between... The, the problem today is this. It's not just... Um, oh, it's between the normal and the crazy. That's her definition. It's not between the Democrat and Republican or between this group. It's between who is normal and who is crazy. The woke, woke group are crazy people. So we got to be very understand what we're dealing with and not try to be over-accommodating in, the, in these matters. And by the way, they're losing a great deal of uh, power. Disney just lost $89 billion. Hmm. The stock just plummeted after this whole thing, trying to push this, uh, this thing on kids. $89 billion they lost in, in stock. So you, the only way to hit these people is hit them in their pocket. And that's where they're losing money again and again. You'll find it now. And Disney fired the lady who was trying to push all this woke stuff. But again, uh, will they ever be able to return to what they used to be? Absolutely not. Because they really turned a lot of people off. And quite frankly, a lot of these other woke companies, there's another company, another big bank that lost a substantial amount of billions of dollars as well because they went woke. 
you hear the expression now, if you go woke, you go broke. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems to be what's happening. And uh, it's a good sign that people are coming back to the center, uh, maybe right of the center as opposed to left of the center. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead quickly with your question. I will. I um, want to know the difference between hell with hell with hell people who go to hell, whatsoever the reason why they go to hell. I want to know the reason why you say they go to heaven. So why um, is it that um, they are not heavenly people? I, I know that when you are living a heavenly life, you have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to know the difference between hell and heaven. If you can explain to me and let the panel understand what I mean about it. Well, Conjunction, let me just say this. Nobody's going to heaven because they do good. Okay, because, they, because of what they do. I want to be very, very clear about that. Okay? This is not a work salvation. A person gets to heaven on the basis of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and they're really genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within that person and does a transforming work so that they're being made new creatures. They're being transformed uh, and they're becoming more Christ-like. So, but they're not getting to heaven because they're Christ-like. They get to heaven because they are in Christ. That needs to be very, very clear. They're not getting to heaven because they go to church. They're not getting to heaven because they believe in Mary. They're not getting to heaven because even they believe in the Bible. They get into heaven solely as a result of putting their faith and trust on the work that Christ did on the cross. That is what is called justification. That's what is called redemption. What follows that is not what gets them into heaven, but because they're saved, because they're transformed, because they have a new nature, because they're regenerated, because the Holy Spirit indwells them, they can't help striving to live a righteous life. Their, uh, their, their whole life is about trying to please God and live for the Lord. Now, what happens to those who go to hell? Every person who goes to hell goes to hell because they have not put their faith and trust in God or Christ. Simple as that. Okay? They have not. They're not there just because they sin. Okay? They're there because they've rejected God and rejected God's Son. That's why they're there. And it doesn't matter how good they are and how um, generous they are and what kind of philanthropy that they do and all the nice things. Those are good things, but that will never get them to heaven. It is do they have Christ or do they not have Christ? And it's the rejection of God and Christ that puts people in hell. Let's be very, very clear about that. Does that mean now that we don't have good people who are not Christians? Of course. We have thousands of good people who are not Christians. But they're not going to get to heaven because they're good. It's because they've put their faith in the provision that God has made in the sacrifice of His Son so that man may be forgiven. Everything revolves around Christ and the sacrifice Christ made on the cross. If you accept that and put your faith and trust in it, it brings salvation and redemption and heaven. If you reject that, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, no matter how good you are, you're going to be damned, you're going to go to hell. That's a simple biblical teaching on this matter. And you can read Romans chapter 4 and 5, and um, you'll see that Paul explains the whole matter there when it comes to this whole matter of justification and forgiveness. Thank you for your call, Codrington. 
Keep your radio dial tuned to 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. We have 30 minutes left in tonight's episode of That's Truth. Thank you very much for all of your interaction so far. We still have many questions, so if you haven't heard yours asked yet, stay tuned, and we will get to it, Lord willing. If by chance we don't get to it tonight, we will start out next week's episode with it. Yeah, Nathan, just want to, uh, an example just came to me. The, the, the thief on the cross yeah. who was a felon, and who was being rightfully executed because of his lifestyle and what he had done. Yet, in one moment, he put his faith and trust in Christ. And the Lord said, well, today shall thou be. No, did he do any good? No. He did absolutely no good. His whole life was ruinous before, right? Completely ruinous, worthy of capital uh, punishment. But now he comes to faith and trust in Christ, and he is totally forgiven and on his way to glory. I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's not the good that he did after that got into heaven. It was the fact that here in the midst of Christ's uh, crucifixion, he recognizes him as Lord and said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? Now, here's a man that is being crucified with you, and you have so much faith to believe that he's a true son of God, that even though he's on the cross, he is the Savior, etc. That You're talking about faith? Yeah. There's no greater faith I find in the Bible that, than that, that particular moment that you can see through in spite of his crucifixion that he's a Lord of glory. That's why uh, the Bible says, flesh and blood have not revealed these things to us, but the Father, the Spirit, reveals that. He, only the Spirit could have shown him that. He could have seen that, that Christ, though being crucified, he was a Lord of glory. We're told that had Pilate known that he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But here's a thief, common thief, getting his just due, yet in a moment he's saved on his way to glory without any single act of good act uh, after his conversion or before his conversion that got him into glory. Our next question says, Is there any reference in the Bible where Enoch prophesied that, and then here's a quote from Jude, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly besides the book of Jude. The New Testament always draws reference to the Old Testament, but I cannot seem to put my hands or eyes of where Enoch had said this in the Old Testament. Where did Jude get this reference from? Well, I'd like to make one simple correction. The New Testament doesn't always draw reference to the Old Testament prophets. There are things mentioned in the Old in the New Testament that are not in the Old Testament. So there's not always there there are references to Isaiah and stuff like that, but not every reference in the New Testament has a reference to the Old Testament. So that needs to be to be qualified. The other thing is this um you got to face the fact that there are a lot of books mentioned in the Bible that are not in the canon of scriptures. And there are about 10 or 12 of them. Let me give you an example of some of them, Nathan. Look at Joshua 10.13. Joshua 10.13 reads as follows. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down until a whole day. Fascinating that that book clearly was something in the Old Testament days when that miracle occurred. 
But there's no reference in the Bible, uh, no, no, no canonical book called Jasser. Look at also at um, Numbers 21, 14. Numbers 21, 14 says, Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and the books of Aaron, in the brooks of Aaron. Again, there's no canonical book called the wars of the Lord, but clearly during that period of time, there was a book documenting how God was leading his people. So it's not every book that is mentioned uh, in the scripture itself are part of the canonical writings. Look also, Nathan, at um, ooh, 1 Kings 14.19. And the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, now how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Right. Again, that is a book that is not there. Uh, also look at Second um, Chronicles 9.29. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah? Ahijah, uh-huh. And... And divisions... And the Shilonite, and the visions of Ido, the sheer seer against Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Those three books that are not in our canonical books. So there are other books that I'm, I'm, you'll see where I'm going with this yeah. in just a moment. Also, look at um, look at Second um, Chronicles twelve five. The word is Shemai there. Second then Chron- came Shemai, the prophet of Rehoboam. And to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishkask, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord. That's Second Chronicles 12.5? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, Second Chronicles 12.5. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Okay. Um there is a in, in Chronicles. I must have gotten the wrong reference there, but there's a reference there where it's called the book of the same guy Shemai. I think it's in Second. See if it's eleven. Um, it's there though. Look at another one then. Uh, look at Second Chronicles thirteen twenty two. Second Chronicles thirteen and verse twenty two says, and the rest of the acts of Abijah. And the ways and his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet Ido. Again, okay. we don't have that prophetic writing that he did. If you look at also at First Kings eleven forty one. First Kings eleven forty one. Scroll down to verse forty one here. Some of these chapters are kind of long. Yeah. And the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom. Are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? We don't have that book either, right? Let me give you two others and then we'll come. To look at um, 1 Chronicles 29, 29. 1 Chronicles 29, 29 says, Now the Acts of David the king, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. 
Right. We don't. We didn't even know that Nathan wrote a book. We didn't even know that Gad wrote a book. But we now learned that during that particular time, these prophets recorded their prophecies. And then one last one, Second um, Chronicles twenty, thirty-four. Second Chronicles twenty and verse thirty-four, 34 yeah. says, "Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat." First and last, behold, they are written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, who is mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. Again, we don't have that book, the book of Jehu. So I've given you, uh, basically, 12 different books mentioned in the Bible that are not part of our canon of scriptures. I'll let you see where we're going for this. Now, let's go to the New Testament. and You'll see that the Apostle Paul himself quotes non-canonical books. In his, in his, in, for example, look at um, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Again, that is a direct quotation from a guy called Menander, a, a philosopher called Menander. Paul is using that as a quotation. Look at also uh, Titus 1, 13, and 12 and 13. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Again, that's a direct quotation from a guy called Epimenides. So Paul is quoting, and he's writing to Titus, and he's saying, look, they have a, a writer, a prophet that they call Epimenides, and this is what he said. And what he said is true. So he's quoting exactly quotations out of this guy's books. And then the other one, Acts seventeen twenty-eight. Acts 17 and verse 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Again, a quotation from a poetic writer called Aratus that Paul is actually quoting there. So as long as the the pagan writer or the is in is something that is true, uh, they have no problem with including that in their speech. It's like a pastor preaching a sermon, and he's trying to support the evidence. Uh, he goes outside the Bible but take something that is literally true and use its support. That's the kind of thing that we find within uh, that. Now, that brings us to the book of Jude. Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch, okay? And the book of Enoch was an ancient Hebrew apocalyptic text that um, is ascribed by tradition to Enoch, who was the great-grandfather of Noah uh, that is quoted there in the book of Jude, uh, that the the guy made reference to, so it doesn't mean that the new, the writers of the Old Testament and New Testament always quoted from prophets. They quoted from other sources as well. Let me give you another one that is not in the Old Testament. Paul mentions. Look at Second Timothy three eight. Second Timothy chapter three verse eight. Verse eight. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do those. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Now, these two people, Janus and Jambres, were the two 
Um, you remember in the book of Exodus, when he was confronted by these, um, not witch doctors, what do you call them? Magicians, these magicians that Pharaoh brought in to do. The, these are the two men. But where did Paul get that from? Paul got that from a book called the Apocryphon, which is an ancient book uh, out of um, Egyptians who, who uh, a book that was written by the Egyptians about these two particular extremely talented magicians. So Paul uses that in that particular passage. What I would like to say is this. Remember that it's not the, uh, the human author that decides what goes into the Bible. So the, clearly the Holy Spirit has indicated to the Apostle Paul that these are the correct names of these people. They're not in the, in the Bible, by the way. We just told that they resisted Moses, but we never give them names. But now Paul gives us these two names, etc. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Okay, I've got the, maybe 2 uh, Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by yeah. inspiration of God yeah. and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Yeah. So whatever is in the Bible is God-breathed, is inspired by God, is given to us under the superintending guidance of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit has guided these New Testament writers to take something outside the Old Testament prophets, include it within the New Testament writings, because it has a sanction of truth uh, on it. And, and the other one is First Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, verse twenty and twenty-one. Second Peter, chapter one, verse twenty and twenty-one. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of God, by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The point I'm making here is that the Holy Spirit guided the prophets in the Old Testament and that guided the apostles in their writings. This is not just a human book. This is a human divine book that God uses man to include uh, in, in the word what he wanted there. So the selection of the prophecy of Enoch from the book of Enoch, which is an old ancient apocalyptic book uh, within the tradition of the Jews, clearly was something that the Holy Spirit guided Jude to include within uh, scriptures. Same thing in reference to Paul with his quotation for Menander, Apennides, and Aratus. Uh, he was guided that these what these men said are actually true, so this becomes part of the, the scripture. So to answer the question, there's no reference to the prophecy of uh, Enoch that is mentioned in the book of Jude in any of the Old Testament books. But again, that does not mean that Jude did not make that prophecy. Because just like other books in the Bible that are not part of the canonical book, uh, clearly the book of Enoch that was written is not canonical, but it contained, in essence, uh, and, uh, what, um, what really happened back in those times. That's what I'm trying to say, that the selection was made not by just these men. The Spirit guided them to select this particular passage. And just like other books are not included in the Bible, and some words of uh, people who are not prophets were included in the Bible, that is the process of editing that is given by the Holy Spirit in dealing with people who are given uh, to write the Bible. Are there still people alive today that are in 
inspired and should be writing additional books to the Bible? No, the Bible is complete. I, 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 I tell anybody, read Genesis and read Revelations, and tell me if you can come to any other conclusion. This is the first chapter, this is the last chapter, and, and then you read in between, it all fits together. The Bible, the canon of Scripture is complete. Um, there's no prophets, there are no apostles today, and therefore the Bible being complete. And by the way, remember that the book of um, Ephesians tells us that the prophets and the apostles laid the foundation for the church when the church was being founded. The foundation was laid by them. The superstructure has been built. You don't uproot the foundation, start up with the foundation. It's already laid by the prophets and the apostles. So there's no need for new prophets and new apostles. The foundation, what is being done now, the church is being built up, and God has given the evangelist, the teacher, and the pastor as the primary people that are now used to build up the church. What should an individual do if they're at a church and the pastor is not using the Word of God, he has some new revelation. Maybe it came to him through a dream or through a vision that he has had. What would be the biblical approach to take? My answer to that is very simple. What are you doing there? Now, why would you stay there in a case like that? I know of one church in um, um, didn't want, don't want to identify it, but I can identify it, uh, where... Um, that's precisely what has happened. The person started off as a very good preacher uh, using the Word of God, and then it came to a point where he told the people, I no longer believe in the book, basically. So I asked the person, well, what does he preach? Well, he just preached from his dreams, his visions, whatever it is, and also if he wanted to select something from the Bible, he would do it. But I, I want to know, but why, why, what gives him the right then to select something from the Bible? See? Those kind of people are not of God, and people need to understand that. The sooner those uh, people who sit under that ministry move from that ministry, the better it is for them. Because believe you me, to maintain that kind of ministry without the Word, I don't know what else a person can be giving people Sunday to Sunday. And if you're giving them your ideas, you're going to run out of ideas at some point in time, so you're going to have to turn to some other source to get an answer. Uh, unless you're just singing and and uh, dancing, and there's no preaching or no teaching. So I would say to people like that, it's time to move and get into a good, solid Bible teaching, Bible-believing church, and leave that uh, apostate ministry and let it go its own way. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268 462 7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782 1454. You can send us your question on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then you can comment in the comment section, and your question will get passed along to Pastor Murphy. That being said, we have a lot of questions, many more than we're going to get to tonight in this episode. So if you haven't heard your question asked yet, we have not disposed of it, we have not forgotten about it, we will get to it either tonight or, Lord willing, next Tuesday evening in the next episode of That's Truth. (coughs) Next question. I am reading a book, Occult ABC, Exposing Occult Practices and Ideologies by Kurt E. Koch. In chapter 28, pages 92 to 95 on homosexuality, And I'm a bit baffled by the latter paragraph on page 94. He states, 
From a medical point of view, the hereditary form is not curable. Is Koch possibly implying that homosexuality is hereditary? Thus, there is no cure for this, for that extent. <coughs> Unfortunately, the chapter does not convey much on this topic. Can Pastor Murphy please expound upon this? Thanks in advance. Well, I uh, read the text that you sent in, and I didn't wasn't able to read what went before or what went after, so it's very difficult to see the context. I was. Um, reading it, and it seemed to be very ambiguous. Is he just saying that this is what the medical profession say, that a person who was born with it is incurable? Is he just repeating and parroting what uh, they're saying? Or is he siding with them and agreeing that uh, homosexuality is hereditary and therefore incurable? Uh, I, I'm not too sure until I see the context exactly. What it, but what I would say this, whether he is ambiguous or not, whether he's supporting it or not, uh, homosexuality is curable. It's not something that is incurable. Okay. Now you're saying it's curable. Does that mean that it's something that's wrong? It's evil. It's evil. Uh, and and, and uh, I would like to just say that as well. I would find it difficult. And by the way, I, I know I recommended the Koch book, and most of his books are, are very good. But again, it doesn't mean that I agree with him with everything. This kind of a statement, if he's suggesting that because the medical profession said there's some hereditary element involved and therefore homosexual can't be cured, I would be the first to condemn his association and his taking side with this, this group because the Bible is very, very clear. Homosexuality is not only sin, it's a perversion, it's against nature, it's an abomination before God. And the Bible makes it very, very clear that it's a, it's a practice that uh, will bring judgment and God's condemnation and hell if a person doesn't turn away from that kind of sinful lifestyle. So I am not a person going to endorse that, but I do believe that homosexuality can be cured, and that can be cured by regeneration, the renewing of the mind, and the recovery process. So it will take some time for people to work through this whole thing. But there's no question in my mind that you can be delivered from the homosexual practice. Pastor, we have a caller from Montserrat. Thank you very much for calling. And go ahead quickly with your question, please. Yes. Um, good night. Good night, Brother Nathan. Um, good night, sir. Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. Yes, good night. Yeah. Yeah. Make it quick. But let, let me just make a quick suggestion before him. Um, Brother Nathan, can you? Um, are we not modern age? Can you get one WhatsApp number? Because we believe you get more interaction if you got WhatsApp. If you don't watch any little money, you don't know what he's doing. If you got WhatsApp, call him. Uh, it's it's something that I have been exploring. I would require a little bit more technology, so I will further put it up on my priority list. Thank you for the suggestion. Okay, right, um, Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. One suggestion to you on Yes, sir. Sometimes got a problem when the church, the church, the church, the church. Uh huh. Denomination, the denomination hall. Because sometimes you go to the denomination hall and church, you know, although God alone is the church, you know who the church is, the church, the blood wash one. But you can go to the church, we're not even blood wash, one blood wash, and you still call the church. And all kind of decisions and so. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I think I do. Uh, I'm just using the word, look, the reason why I'm using the word church in that context, yeah. because I really feel that some people are not aware that there are a lot of 
churches out there that just church in name. That's why I did the whole thing on the apostasy to let to see how far these churches have gone. These are not true exactly. born again believers. No question exactly. about that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. From last week now. Uh -huh. So me just go ask and then we hang up. Uh -huh. Go ahead. Um, me understand, me understand exactly what you mean. You, you, you say a little word that I'm too satisfied with. Um, What's that? You not, you not, you not, you not before. You, you know. But then, you said now that no got to the, to the, um, to the tribulation. That little part, that little part that got, got, got me um, thinking. So, can you just explain that little part there for me? Uh -huh. For me, satisfied. Yeah. Oh, okay. What what I what what I was trying to explain basically is that there is a every New Testament doctrine there is some parallel Old Testament teaching, and I was trying to explain that some people have a problem with the rapture. They say, well, they don't find the word rapture, etc. The rapture is a mystery that was revealed to the Apostle Paul, and the best example of the rapture is where Enoch was taken out before the judgment came. He was right. he was translated. Now the point, yeah. the other point I was trying to make is that, well, what about Noah? Who does he represent? And I'm trying to ex I was trying to explain that the the church. We believe that when the church is raptured, God regrafts Israel into His program according to Romans chapter nine, ten, and eleven, and uh -huh. Israel is the one that's going to go through the tribulation period. So the same way that Enoch was raptured, which is a type of the church, the fact that Noah goes through that particular time, he becomes a type of Israel going through the tribulation. That's what I was trying to draw a parallel between the two. Because some people say, well, you know, but how do we find the word saint in the revelations? They think that saint refers to the Christians, so the church is going to go to... No, but the, the word saint uh, is the same word that's referred to in the Old Testament, where in the, in the Psalms, the Israelites are called the saints. So I'm just trying to... I was trying to draw a parallel between the rapture and the revelation when, our Lord, when they're going through tribulation. So the church is raptured like Enoch. But yet, who are these then going through the, 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 the wrath of uh, the, the, the flood? And that answer would be that they're the type... He becomes a type of the nation of Israel that is going to be chastised during the tribulation period and they will come through the tribulation period purified. Uh, that's what I was trying to explain. Okay, that's that, that satisfying me. I'm bored with you. Me understand Thank you so very much for calling. I really appreciate that. And thank you for listening from Montserrat. We appreciate it. Continue to encourage others to tune in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And that's truth. Uh, Pastor, any other comments you want to mention in relation to that question? I kind of may have cut you off there, the question about homosexuality and Koch. I would just like to say this, that in spite of what people are being taught, in spite of what the media is doing, and by the way, I've been seeing it very frequently that the media is pushing gay people. I just saw a program on the, uh, one of the news cycles and they were celebrating something and they got these two men together pushing this, etc., etc. The, the other thing I would like to say that I'm not too sure, I know that people are, are not, I'm not trying to be offensive, but it seems to me that what they're doing to a great extent is using black people to push this kind of a lifestyle so that you can't criticize it. And that bothers me greatly. Uh, why would they use these people as, uh, I don't want to use the word models, and I would be offended if I was a black person that that's what they're doing. But 
the rationale behind that is that you can't criticize it now because you're seeing the, the, uh, they're using promoting it to using black people, and I think that black people ought to be repulsed against that. Uh, if I were, uh, that's how I feel about it very, very strongly. But I understand what they're doing. It, it's actually a psychological means of getting something approved so that you can't criticize it to let it become normal. Um, I would say, Nathan, that it is a shameful, depraved practice. And people who practice this thing are morally, spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally uh, sinful. And let me remind people this. Up until the 1970s, homosexuality was labeled as a mental disorder. There was no scientific reason to change it. But through the violent threats that were made to the APA, the American Psychological Society, the people who make these nomenclatures and put these different definitions were frightened and and, uh, fearful that if they didn't change their definition, there would be violence. So it was never done for any scientific reason. Um, It was the coercive power and the uh, violence that actually caused the American Psychological Association to try to change the definition. But it's still a mental disorder. In the last 15 seconds, is there hope for a horrible sinner to spend eternity with God? There's hope for every sinner, no matter what his creed is, no matter how far he's gone to. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, there is forgiveness, there is pardon in Christ Jesus. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.